0: And so last week, um, I started sharing with you some things that we've done intentionally here at Mosaic to make room for folks to work through their faith so that they can decide if the biggest problem they have with Christianity or the Christian faith is actually connected to Jesus or something else. Because one thing that I noticed was, well, one common denominator is that everyone I was having coffee with, they went to our church. And I know that we've done some things to try and make space for people To work through things. So last week we talked about creating the type of space or an environment where this type of process can happen, where people can work through things and hold on to Jesus. And this week we're going to start looking at what we've discovered are the biggest or perhaps the most recurring challenges that people are working through. And this is people who are thinking of pitching their faith, but it's also folks who tend to be curious. Uh, These are the same things that bother people who are looking for some type of faith but are wary of considering or going all in on the Christian faith because of these types of questions. And the way I learned about these is about five years ago, before last summer where I had the conversations I just shared with you, I had another series of conversations with folks who, one after another, were thinking of leaving the Christian faith. And the phrase that they would usually say to me was, Brad, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And I'd be like, "Do what?" And they'd say something like, "Be a Christian." And so after 10 conversations, I started to make a mental list. After easily more than a hundred conversations, not exaggerating, I've written them down. Every person's unique. Don't get me wrong. Uh, The things we're going to talk about in the next few weeks don't apply to everyone, but I would say almost always the people I talk to in this situation and have these conversations all the time in and outside of Mosaic, I'm always talking to people who are frustrated or angry or hurt or burned and don't know if they want to keep following Jesus. These things come up. Um, A lot of you know Rachel Held Evans, who unfortunately passed away yesterday. Uh, she's someone that I feel like when you read her writings, if it means something to you, you're probably one of those people. And if you're feeling that loss, I just want to acknowledge it and say I'm sorry. I know her writings have helped a lot of people, um, and she's connected to a lot of people in this very place, dealing with these very things. So after 100 conversations... I started to write these things down. Everyone's unique. This isn't going to be perfect for everyone. But it's rare that I talk to someone who isn't dealing with at least one of these concerns. And so today, we're going to start with one thing that I think is actually helpful to think of in terms of a question. And that question is, what do you think you have to believe? What do you think you have to believe? I think this is such a great question because I found out that so many people either quit the Christian faith or don't fully consider the Christian faith because of some thing or some cultural aspect that they associate with the Christian faith. That's a total put-off that in the end, at least in my opinion, I don't think is really required to follow Jesus or by Jesus himself. There's a whole list of things people think they have to subscribe to to have Jesus that you don't. And this question I found has a lot to do with how we view the Bible. So let's start there today. This is uh, taken from Mark chapter 2, 23 to 28. And it reads this way. "One One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for humanity, not humanity, for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, if we had time, uh, I could show you um, what I've preached in other sermons about how Jesus has this very high opinion of Scripture. In other places, you can see that Jesus viewed the Bible not just as uh, something for a time, but really something for all time, and that he expected... Uh, the Bible to transform us and lead us into an incredible life. Yet, he seems to be in conflict with another group that takes the writings of Scripture very seriously as well. They're listed here as the Pharisees. Why is there this conflict? Because both groups, it seems to me, want to honor Scripture, but the Pharisees seem very upset with Jesus and his followers. So what's the difference? I think there's actually a fundamental difference between what Jesus needs and expects from the Bible and what the Pharisees need and expect from the Bible. Historically, the Pharisees saw the solution to all of their problems and the problems of their nation to be connected to strict adherence to the teachings, commands of the Bible. They thought the reason that they were under Roman occupation is because they had not followed the scriptures closely enough. And if they could get the people of Israel to return to strict observance of the law and the scriptures, that there would be a great revival and revolution, and the kingdom of God would come and the Romans would get kicked out. All they needed to see the fortunes of Israel turned around would be to follow the scriptures more closely. Now for me, growing up in the church as I did, this raises the question. Because this sounds very familiar to what I was raised with. The problem is that we don't follow the Bible closely enough. The problem with our nation is that we've abandoned the teachings of the Bible. We don't follow them closely enough. And often, I would hear examples or preachers say, the Bible is all you need. We don't need this, 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 or that, because we have the Word of God. We have the scriptures. And that's all we need. Now, some people probably didn't mean exactly that, but some people did. And that's certainly the picture I got. I was raised with the idea that all we need is the Bible. Seminary, they call this sola scriptura, the Bible alone. And that, actually, this perspective does have quite a few advantages. That This perspective can keep uh, human doctrines, traditions, and cultures in check. It means that there's some higher authority than our own whims, maybe our own feelings, or whatever is popular in culture today. It provides a way to challenge our assumptions. I think we need that. I think we need our assumptions challenged. But I also think it can be misapplied as well. And when this happens, it's sometimes referred to as solo scriptura. And from this perspective, all we need is ourselves and the Bible. Anyone should be able to read the Bible on their own and plainly see what is true and right. But it's kind of funny because how many people read the Bible and plainly see different things? So what should we expect from the Bible? Because I think Jesus expected something different than the Pharisees from scriptures as he valued them and considered them inspired, something that would last forever. The first thing, I think, is that uh, the scriptures are meant to be read together. So this principle is hinted at in this passage. You'll notice that in this passage and many others, that Jesus is living life in community. And in particular, he interacts very closely with 12 disciples on a continual basis. And when he talks about the Bible, he talks about it with people. And if it's hinted at here, it's spelled out very clearly in other writings of the Bible, that the council of community, both in the immediate, our current friends, people sitting in this room with us, people who are writing about scriptures today, what people are saying about the Bible today and the traditions and writings of the past are meant to inform our understanding of Scripture. Traditions of the church can become dangerous when they're treated as if they wield the same power and authority as the Scriptures. However, we're at risk also if we ignore them. The writings of the Bible attest to our need of community to avoid being, quote, blown here and there by every wind and teaching and cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. The misapplication of sola scriptura can lead each generation to kind of start from scratch with understanding the Bible rather than standing on the shoulders of those who've come before. So those who do not understand the past, I think we know that they're doomed to repeat its worst qualities. So being in community is important. The Bible alone is not enough. We need the Bible in the context of history and relationships. It's meant to be read together. I think that's true I think that's helpful, I think it's important. I don't think it's the main thing that people who are struggling with do I really have to believe X, Y, and Z are dealing with. So if you're struggling with the beliefs that you associate with the Christian faith or cultures that you associate with the Christian faith, this next thing I think is a little more helpful for you. And that is, and I think Jesus is, has this expectation, and that is that the scriptures are meant to point us to something greater. So in this story, you get Jesus and his followers. They're traveling. And they come across a field of grain. They're hungry. So they start picking heads of grain and eating them. And I guess when you do that, you have to, like, put it in your hand and do this and get the chaff off or something like that. I don't know. I've never done it. I've heard people talk about it. Not walking through a lot of wheat fields recently in Philly. The problem here is that what they were doing... On the Sabbath was considered work, and God had commanded no work to be done on the Sabbath. It was a command. Now, if you're a God-fearing person who wants to follow God and take the Bible seriously as being inspired by the Holy Spirit, what are you supposed to do with that? They are breaking a commandment. Now, what I've heard my whole life, and a lot of commentators say this, is like, "Well, whoa, 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 listen, listen, listen. All right, so the religious people today, the Pharisees, the bad guys in this passage, right? Yeah, they believed in the Bible, but they also wrote this other book. And they added all these other conditions and rules and explanations of how to follow a commandment. And Jesus wasn't breaking a commandment. He was just breaking one of their extra rules. But you know what? That's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't make that point. When he says, he doesn't say, hey, you added to the law, you shouldn't have. Instead, he points that David also broke the law by eating consecrated bread. That's his argument. His argument is, I'm not the first to break the law. Not that, why did you make all these extra rules, you, you know, super religious crazoids or something. It's not where he goes. He says, I did the same thing David did when he broke the law. So his point is that there's something else going on here that's more important than strict adherence to the law. He's conceding that he has broken the law, but his point is there's something else happening here that you're missing. He says, quote, "...the Sabbath was made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." I think this points out something essential to how we approach the commands and instructions of the Bible. The commands are not meant to be restrictive in that they are meant to reveal to us something of who God is. So in this, Jesus says, what's being revealed is, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, which is a bigger deal. And they also... The commands of God are meant to reveal his care for humanity. So commands are first and foremost meant to reveal something about who God is and his care for humanity. The Lord of the Sabbath, Sabbath made for humanity. That comes first. Which means that context, what's happening in the real world around you and me, is important. It affects how we read interpret and apply what we read in the Bible. It's not always the same. You know, we want to have formulas. We want to nail it down. We want the Bible to mean the same thing in every situation for all time. But Jesus is not saying that's what's going on here. It was okay for David to break the rule about consecrated bread because of the context surrounding his breaking of that rule. David and his men were on the run in a battle. They would have either been starved or been too weak to fight. God created the rule about consecrated bread for good, to help create a sense of the holiness of God, to reveal something about who God is. But also to provide for people. The consecrated bread, it was lawful for the priests to eat it. It was how they were cared for. So in that law, in that rule, God is revealing who he is and providing for people. Now, God, of course, wants to care for all of his people. So in this situation, in this context, it was okay for the soldiers to eat the bread because they were starving and they needed to eat. Context can change the way we read and apply the Bible. This is the way Jesus read and applied the scripture of his day. So when we reduce the Bible to rules and formulas to simply follow blindly, we inadvertently, by accident, box God in. But God didn't give us scriptures so that we no longer need to interact with him and could simply just say, do what it says. We still need to follow God. We still need to think. We still need to engage. We can't turn off our brain And say, well, it says this, because the context might be telling us something else, just like the context told Jesus it was okay for his disciples to eat the grain and work on the Sabbath. We're following a live and active God. Now remember this. While in other places Jesus totally affirms the Bible as an authoritative witness to the truth, as Sola Scriptura also affirms. He never said, and never says, it is the truth. In fact, he says something very different. He says that the truth is a person, not a book. The truth is a person whose totality cannot be contained in any one book, even a truly divinely inspired one. In John 14, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A lot of times people focus on that last phrase, which is worth its own sermon. But notice Jesus says, I'm the truth. I'm the truth. So the Bible points to the truth, but is not the truth. I'm gonna say it again, the Bible points to the truth in an inspired way, but is not the truth. The truth, according to Jesus, as reported in scripture, is Jesus. So life is not a paint-by-numbers proposition. It's a journey with the truth who's a person who must be followed to be understood The Bible helps us understand how to follow, but does not replace the need to follow. The Bible helps us understand how to follow, but it does not replace the need to follow, to actually follow. This is a dependent way to live. To quote, just do what it says, you don't have to be so dependent. Just follow the formula. It's a dependent way to live, which leads to one more thing that I think we should expect from our interaction with the Bible. I think what Jesus here is trying to instill, in part, among other things, in his approach to Scripture, is meant to produce humility. Humility. We're finite. What that means is that we have limitations. We're not unimpotent. We're not perfect. We can't understand everything. We're limited. I think we all have lots of great gifts and potential and abilities. I think humanity is amazing. I think you're pretty awesome. But you're limited. You're finite. So am I. We are always, hopefully, growing and learning. But the process of doing theology, of living life, understanding God, it's never finished. Now, does this mean we can't have a solid foundation or that we can't believe anything to be really true? No. No, that's not what I'm saying. You know, a key idea in our church that helps us make sense of theology is an analogy that if you've been around for a little bit, you've probably heard. If you're new, maybe you haven't. So I'm going to hit it one more time. This is my last summer, so here you go. It's the analogy of dogma, doctrine, opinion. It's these concentric circles of belief that have been super helpful for our church in understanding how to approach theology and the Bible and how to make space for us to be in process. So dogma are the things at the heart of the Christian faith. Dogma, in this sense, is a very positive word. These are the things that the historic church has professed for the past 2,000 years. And if you change one of these things... You end up with something that's not Christianity anymore. It's something else. Around that are two other circles, doctrine and opinion. Now, doctrine is full of very important things that make a difference in how we live our lives, that affect our ethics and our understanding of the good life and sin and everything else. But people who agree on dogma very often have different opinions on what doctrine or how doctrine should be laid down or interpreted, good people can come to different conclusions and still be in the realm of the Christian faith. And then opinion, I mean, that's very few people divide over these types of things, but some do, like how you dress, what kind of music, you know. That stuff makes a difference, and it's important. But few people would put it at the heart of the Christian faith. So dogma includes things like the nature of who Jesus is, his death, his resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, things like that. And just personally, do I believe those things? Yes. Have I taught those things? Yes. Have I bet my life on those things? Yes. Do I hold them deeply, more deeply than anything else in my life? Yes. Are they the foundations of my life? I hope so. That's my, definitely my aspiration. Do I understand them perfectly? No. No. Even with the things I hold to be the most true, that I believe to be the most true, I know that I don't get it completely. Why? Well, the authors of the Bible straight up tell us that we, quote, know in part and we see in part. That's what Paul the Apostle said. Paul, who wrote half the Christian scriptures, said, I know in part and I see in part. He went on to say, I won't see clearly until I see Jesus face to face. And history has borne this out. You know, one of the riskiest things that you can say is that the Bible is clear. It's not that no one can understand anything in the Bible. I'm not saying that. If that were true, what have I been doing for the past 15 years? I don't know. But it is that when, in our pride, we lock down exactly what the Bible says about something, particularly something in the realm of doctrine an opinion, as opposed to dogma, that we're really we're starting to walk on thin ice. I mentioned earlier that um, Rachel Held Evans passed away yesterday. And it reminds me of an article uh, that I read that she wrote a few years ago that really went, I think it maybe was one of her first blog posts that went kind of viral. And in her article, she quotes people throughout history In their understanding of what is, quote-unquote, clear in the Bible. So, in the 16th century, this was written. People gave ear to an upstart astrologer who strove to show that the earth revolves, not the heavens or the firmament, 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 thank you, the sun and the moon. This fool wishes to reverse the entire science of astronomy. But sacred scripture tells us that Joshua commanded the sun to stand still and not the earth. Who said that? Martin Luther, pretty famous, smart theologian. That the sun revolves around the earth. That's what the Bible clearly says. In 1823, another person wrote this. The right of holding slaves is clearly established by the Holy Scriptures, both by precept and example. That was Reverend Richard Furman, the first president of the South Carolina State Baptist Convention. 1846, quote, The evidence that there were both slaves and masters of slaves in churches founded and directed by the apostles cannot be got rid of without resorting to methods of interpretation that will get rid of everything. Reverend Leonard Bacon... In defense of American slavery. And by the way, Christian ministers wrote nearly half of the defenses of slavery in that book, often citing scripture to make their case. 1869, quote, the Bible is the revealed will of God, and it declares the God-given sphere of woman. The Bible is then our authority for saying woman must not, must content herself with this sphere. Who demand the ballot for woman? They are not the lovers of God, nor are they believers in Christ as a class. There may be exceptions, but the majority prefer an infidel's cheer to the favor of God and the love of the Christian community. That was Reverend Justin Dewey Fulton in his Treatise Against Women's Suffrage. 1982. The Bible clearly teaches, starting in the 10th chapter of Genesis and going all the way through, That God has put differences among people on the earth to keep the earth divided. That was written by Bob Jones III defending Bob Jones University's policy banning interracial dating and marriage. 82. that policy stood until 2000 because it was clearly written in the Bible. Now, Rachel Held Evans, as you can imagine, goes on to say, of course... For every Christian who appealed to Scripture to oppose abolition, integration, women's suffrage, and the acceptance of a heliocentric solar system, there were Christians who appealed to Scripture to support those things, too. But these quotes should serve as a humbling reminder that rhetorical claims to the Bible's clarity on a subject do not automatically make it so one need not discount the inspiration and authority of Scripture to hold one's interpretations of Scripture with an open hand. You know, and let me just say this. It's so easy (laughs) to judge people who come before us and have used the Bible to some end that we find offensive or uh, misfocused. But I know I have to be careful uh, like she goes and she says this, we like to characterize the people in the quotes above as having, quote, used scripture to their own advantage. But I find it both frightening and humbling to note that often the way we make the distinction between those who loved scripture and those who used scripture is hindsight. Are we any better than those who've come before us? Are we any less finite? Are we any less limited And instead of judging them, which kind of feels good sometimes, right? Maybe we can learn from them. And I think we, in this room, are wise to hold our theology deeply and with an open hand. It's pride that can lead us to discount the people of the past and assume that our own infallibility is present and fall into the same trap. So, with that in mind, for those of you troubled by a theology, a f- theology or a practice that you've been told is biblical and clear, it must be accepted to follow Jesus, whether specifically or whether it's just been implied to you or you've seen it lived out, I'd like to ask you just to please just pause here. Pause here. Let me ask you. is it? Is it? Is it clear? And before you let go of Jesus, or before you write Jesus off, if you don't really identify as a Christian at this point, but you're curious, ask yourself two things. One, is this belief that troubles me essential? In other words, is it at the center of the circle, in the dogma section, So if I believe something else, do I lose the baseline, the the historic center of faith in Jesus? And if you're wondering, I think the Nicene Creed is a great yardstick for the baseline of Christian theology. So this thing that has you one foot out the door, or has you keeping Jesus at arm's length, is it in the middle there, really? Is it essential? And second question, do Christians around the world even hold to this thing that threatens to push you away from Jesus? Because I bet if you looked into it, when it comes to the thing that bothers you the most, odds are there are literally millions, I'll say it again, millions of Christians around the world that don't believe that, There are millions of Christians who didn't vote for that politician that appalls you so much. There are millions of Christians that are inclusive. There are millions of Christians that read the creation story in Genesis and the book of Genesis in all sorts of different ways. There are millions of Christians who are scientists. And there are millions of Christians around the world, and this is just as important, who love Jesus and deeply hold convictions that are the very thing that you're responding against. point is this. If you're going to push Jesus to the side, do it because you just can't buy into something essential, like whether you believe Jesus was God and the Savior of the world. Something in the center of the circle that really makes all the difference, but not something that may be important, but millions of Christians disagree about. You know, for 15 years, We have worked to build a community here where we hold tightly to the center. We hold tightly to Jesus, while at the same time we leave lots of room for people to agree to disagree on doctrine that may be very important, but is not essential. Not only that, it's important that we include people from different perspectives here because it's part of our prophetic calling and mission as a church. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. Here's what I mean. You want a theological term to impress your friends? Oh boy, you're dying for it, aren't you? Okay, I'll give it to you. Syncretism. Ever heard that one? Say it with me. Syncretism. Oh, that's exciting. Now you can forget that term. What syncretism means is uh, selling out. So that would be the critique of say Christians who bow to public pressure who buy into the culture around them and sell out because it's easier to go with the stream of culture than to stand against it that's what syncretism is that's what selling out is so a lot of times when you if you create a space where you certainly have your essentials in place but you you have room to agree to disagree one of the charges can be well you're just Why don't you just take a stand and draw a line? Why are you selling out to culture? It's just easier to do that, isn't it? To that, I would say this. What's the greatest pressure in our society today? What is the greatest cultural force working on you at this moment in the United States of America? I would suggest that it is not any hot-button issue what you believe about hot button issue A, B, C, or anything to do with your political conviction. The greatest pressure in the United States of America culturally right now is to divide, to silo, to stake your claim and make everyone else who disagrees with you evil, corrupt, immoral and have as the only solution putting them down, silencing them, taking power away from them. That's the pressure. It is. You know, I'm supposed to be humble here and leave a lot of room to disagree. I'm so convinced of this, I'll just say it. I think that's the biggest pressure. And if you haven't felt it, you have not been on Facebook. You were not alive in 2016 when we had that election. And you have not lived through the aftermath since pressure, 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 divide. You're righteous, they're not. You're right, they're wrong. You're righteous, they're evil. You may not use the term evil, but that's the thoughts you think in your head. There's almost nowhere in our city, in our society, where people can agree to disagree and be in the same room. We can't pass frickin' law in this country. It's a zero-sum game. I can't win unless you lose. We can barely pass a budget to keep the government running. It's black and white. It's either or. It's us versus them. You know what would be prophetically powerful in today's age, in the moment we're living in? A community, a place where people who agree to disagree on hot-button issues, love each other, work together, are in community with each other. That's what's different. Anything else is just syncretism. And what would it say about Jesus if he was the thing that held these crazy different people together? If we want to have a prophetic voice, Certainly, there will be issues of justice we stand for. There will be lots of things like that. But one of the ways we can have a prophetic voice is to make space for and love people who don't think like us, to be in the same room with them, to be in the same small group, to be so thankful that the person across the table believes something completely different from you that you can't even understand. That's the only way we're all going to change. That person across the table, they might need to learn something. They might be missing it. How are they going to miss it? I mean, how are they going to learn it if they never interact with you and people who think like you in a loving way? If all they get... Uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> so I was at this this, um, I, this... this stood out to me. I don't know if I can explain it very well because obviously this isn't in my notes. But I was uh, in this setting, it wasn't exactly a workshop, but where someone was presenting what they had learned about how opinions change. And they showed us like a Brady Bunch screen with like nine different approaches to changing someone's opinion. And the reason they'd studied this is they were uh, trying to, get, to learn how people might not be Islamophobic and afraid of people who are Muslim. Um. And it's particularly powerful if you don't know a lot of people in whatever the other group is. Uh, and so long story short, the one thing, and I, it pained me because uh, there's this one clip from this comedy show that I love. It's a John Oliver show uh, last week tonight or something like that. I don't have it HBO anymore, so I can't ever watch it. But they said, let's watch all these different clips. One was a news show where they're interviewing someone. One was John Oliver being very funny about something. And let's see what changed people's opinions before and after. And the only thing that had a negative effect that people dug their heels in, unfortunately, was my buddy John Oliver and his comedy. Because I was like, oh, get people laughing. and Hit him with the truth. But the thing about it was it was mocking. And judgmental even if smart and even if funny so if you didn't agree with him going in you just dug your heels in that's what we're doing our society we're 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 mocking people on Facebook we're calling them names we need people who believe differently from us in this room so we actually have the opportunity of seeing transformation in their lives because it's not going to happen unless they're interacting with us. And at the same time, where are our blind spots that we're so confident about but we don't see? Where do we think things are so clear? We need that person so that we learn and grow. And I don't even know where you're landing, who that person is and who you are in your mind, but we need that here. You know, we need to fight to be a place where people don't all have to agree even on the things that seem so close to who we are and if we become that place and if Jesus is the one who fuels that that shows that Jesus is different and Jesus is alive but if the church is like every other place in society what difference does Jesus make he hasn't made these people any different so If Jesus is strong enough to hold everyone together, what does that say about him and the reality of his resurrection? Let's do an exercise. I want you to close your eyes. This is more just a thought exercise. I want you to use your imagination. What do you think you have to believe to follow Jesus that keeps you from following him or makes you think about quitting the whole thing? What do you think that you have to believe to follow Jesus that keeps you from following him or makes you think about quitting the whole thing? Another question. What turns you off about, quote-unquote, Christian culture that keeps you from faith in Jesus or makes you want to get away? And once you've pictured those things, you have them in your mind's eye, I want to ask you another question. What have you experienced of Jesus that is attractive or draws you to him? What have you experienced of Jesus that's attractive or draws you to him? Now that you have those things in mind, a question. If you could have the Jesus that you've experienced without the troublesome item, would you want that? Why? Why not? And the last question, if the sticking point for you is essential... Do you still want Jesus? Why or why not? Let's pray. Jesus, we just pray that this place would be different from the outside world that we could love people who are different from us. That loving your enemy wouldn't be something that happens down the street, but that happens in these four walls. Whereby your grace, we could be humble enough to understand that we could be wrong, or we could learn from other people and that would help us create space for people that we disagree with so they might learn too. And we pray in all of these things that, Jesus, your reality would be lifted up so that people would be drawn to you. Amen.